Good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, and really excited about our New Year series. How many times have you uh, had somebody at the store say, have a blessed day? Uh, we probably all had that. You know, Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, what's often called the Beatitudes, just the first nine verses. He says, blessed are those, and then fill in the blank. You know, the blessed, the word blessed has a lot of meanings. It can mean kind of the idea of fortunate or happy. And so imagine if you could have more than a blessed day. What if you could have a blessed year, right? Or even a blessed life. And so we're really excited about this new New Year series where we're going to unpack the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that we hope will encourage you to walk in the blessings of the Lord. The next four weeks, we are going to be going through what is often called the Beatitudes. And so this is the beginning to the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Sean mentioned. And what we have here are a series of nine sayings that begin with that word, blessed. So we are going to talk about over the next four weeks what it means, biblically speaking, to be blessed. And so when we use that word today, I think we typically mean, you know, something good happened or we're happy about something. We had some sort of fortunate circumstance. So we say we're blessed, uh, you know, all the time. You probably walked in here today and somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. Yeah, it's a common thing, especially in Christian circles to say that. But what does it mean to be blessed? One good way to find out what the world thinks is through hashtags. So you go on social media, type in hashtag blessed. It's very illuminating. You'll probably see stuff like, you know, just got a promotion, hashtag blessed, just got a new car, hashtag blessed, whatever else it might be. You know, Pastor David shared one with me this week that he saw. I think it was something like, uh, I'm smiling because it's my daughter's birthday. Uh, she moved out and she doesn't ask me for money anymore. Hashtag blessed. Uh, I saw one post that was, I got an extra chicken nugget at Wendy's, hashtag blessed. And by the way, that was from Megan Weiss, if anyone was wondering who posted that one, just to rat her out. Uh, I won't do that in the next service. Uh, but, uh, but here's the deal. Is that all that we mean when we talk about the blessing of God? Is it extra chicken nuggets? Is it kids that don't mooch off of us anymore? Is it a new car, a new promotion, any of these things? Well, of course, I think you already know the answer, right? Our definition of blessing is so me-centered. It's what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? However, I think a biblical definition of blessing is rather God-centered. A blessed person in scripture is a person who is living their life, enjoying the favor and the approval of God. It is life lived in relationship and in fellowship with our creator. And in the Beatitudes, what Jesus Christ is doing is he's painting a picture for us of what a blessed life really looks like. He's holding this up to us and saying, this is what a life of blessing in the kingdom of God looks like. Don't you wanna be a part of that? And so this morning, we're going to look at the first two Beatitudes that I see as something as the doorway into the blessed life. And I think it might be kind of shocking for us. It might not be what we were expecting, because here's the main point. A blessed life in God's kingdom starts with humility and grief over sin. If you want to pull out your phone and type in hashtag blessed in the search bar on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, I'd like to know how many posts you see about humility and grief over sin. Probably not a lot. But Jesus is teaching us that this is the doorway. This is the doorway into a life of blessing when we come to the end of ourselves and depend entirely on God. So with this in mind, let's take a look at this text together. Now this morning, we're gonna study verses three and four, but I'd like to begin the sermon series by reading the whole passage so we can have the whole context in mind. So let's start in verse one. 
Word of God says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that we have the privilege of learning from the wisdom of the greatest preacher who ever lived, preaching from the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And Lord, we confess right out of the gate how inadequate we are for these things. Lord, we confess that we are not poor in spirit as we should be, that we do not mourn over our sin nearly enough, Lord. Lord, would you humble us this morning? Would you bring us to an end of ourselves so that you would fill us with yourself? Lord, we love you. We wanna be more like Christ. Would you teach us? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk in a way that honors you? We love you, Lord. Help us to understand this passage and apply it to our lives for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so I wanted to start this sermon series before we jump into verse three by talking about the Beatitudes as a whole. I'd like to spend a couple of minutes just by introducing, setting up this whole passage of scripture that, in a way that I think will be helpful over the next four weeks. So first of all, the Beatitudes are the introduction to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapters five through seven. This is probably the most famous sermon ever preached. We know that because even if you're not a Christian, you quote from the Sermon on the Mount all the time. You say things like do unto others as you would want them to treat you. You say things like turn the other cheek. You say things like go the extra mile. People don't even know they're quoting Jesus, but these sorts of things come from the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. And the introduction to his sermon is the Beatitudes. And let me give you three things that we learn about the Beatitudes. So first of all, the Beatitudes are a description of a blessed life in God's kingdom. That's my definition for you. They are a description of a blessed life in God's kingdom. Let's start with that word description. I think that the Beatitudes are descriptive rather than prescriptive. Here's what I mean by that. They are describing for us the kind of life that is under the blessing of God in the kingdom of God. They're not necessarily prescriptive. They're not necessarily commands. Don't think of it like Jesus is saying, hey, do this and you will earn God's blessing but rather it is a description of the kind of person, the kind of life that is under the blessing of God. Notice the structure of the text. There's nine sayings here. They begin with the blessed statement, the descriptive statement, the kind of person that does this is blessed. Then it ends with a promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's nine of these. The first eight are relatively equal in length, and the ninth one is a lot longer for emphasis, a sort of the climax of it. But notice how the first eight, the first promise of the first one is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then the eighth beatitude, verse 12, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
the kingdom of heaven is the brackets that gives us this whole thing. That's why I'm saying it is a description of a blessed life in God's kingdom. So let me get very practical with us for a minute. The Beatitudes are to be understood in that context. This is life in the kingdom of God. Let me get even more specific for you. The Beatitudes are for Christians. This is a description of the Christian life. This is not something that we have the power to do on our own. This is not something that an unbeliever can do in the way that Jesus is requiring. This is a description of a Christian life. And for those who might not know, or you're new or you're checking us out, let me just explain. This is how we enter into the kingdom of God. This is how we become a Christian. It's through the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, that Jesus took on flesh, that Jesus is God and man in one person, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross in our place, bearing the penalty for sins, that he rose from the dead three days later. When we repent of our sins, that means we turn away from them and we trust in Jesus Christ. We receive him into our life as our savior. We will have eternal life. We enter into God's kingdom. And the Beatitudes are the description of what our life ought to look like as followers of Jesus. So that's first. It's a description of a blessed life in God's kingdom. But next, the Beatitudes are not natural attitudes, but they are a supernatural lifestyle. In other words, this is not something that comes naturally to us. These are not personality traits. These are not natural abilities. These are character qualities that are empowered by the Holy Spirit as we seek to walk with Christ in God's kingdom. Let me give you a few examples. So when we say, blessed are the meek, we're not just talking about somebody who's naturally a timid person, somebody who doesn't like to step on toes. You know, we're talking about a supernatural gentleness that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about power under control. What about blessed are those who mourn? He's not just talking about being sad about stuff. This is a kind of spiritual mourning about sin and about the consequences of sin and suffering and death. Again, it's poor in spirit, not materially poor. It's hungering and thirsting after righteousness, not hungering and thirsting after something in this world. The point is that these are descriptions of a Christian living life in only the way that they can because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And notice here the emphasis on heart attitudes in the Beatitudes. It's not just actions. It's being poor in spirit. It's being meek. It's being pure in heart. All of these different things. One of the major emphases, if not the main point of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, is that the kind of obedience, the discipleship that Jesus requires, it's not just about actions. It's about the heart. He's contrasting the kind of discipleship that he is calling us to with the Pharisees who are just focused on the outside. They're focused on the externals. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, don't hate. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. You see, he is saying it's about the heart. And that's what the Beatitudes are showing us as well. Final thing I'd like to show you about the Beatitudes, and this is what's most fascinating to me. The Beatitudes are a reversal of the world's values. They take the values of this world and flip them upside down. It's incredible. If we were to do a survey of the average American, what kind of life is blessed, would any of these things make the list? We'd be more like, okay, if you're rich, you know, you're attractive, you're healthy, 
you're famous, you know, you're successful in your career, you got a nice house, a nice job, a nice car. Those would be the things that would make the American Beatitudes. But Jesus gives us none of that. He gives us mourning. He gives us persecution. He gives us poverty of heart. He gives us all of these things that turn the values of the world upside down. But I think he does that to show us that the kind of life that is truly blessed is not about any of that stuff. It's about a relationship with our creator in his kingdom. I wrote this down as as sort of the world's beatitudes in contrast to Jesus's beatitudes. You know, the world says, be yourself, express yourself, assert yourself and look out for what's best for you. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says, suck it up, ignore the bad. Just try to think happy thoughts. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. The world says, seek to dominate situations to gain power for yourself. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The world says, blessed are those who hunger for food, sex, and material possessions. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The world says, if someone hurts you, get them back. Make them hurt for hurting you. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. The world says, blessed are you when you indulge your flesh. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. The world says, win that argument. Show everyone that you are superior and right. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. The world says you are blessed when you're prosperous. Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted. Why should we listen to Jesus? Because he's the king. And this is about life in his kingdom. And his kingdom will never end. The kingdoms of this world, they don't last long. The kingdoms of our Lord and Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. So with this in mind, church, I think now we're ready to look at the first two Beatitudes this morning. So look with me at verse three. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice he says poor in spirit. Okay, this is not about material poverty He's not talking about being poor economically. You know, the Bible never glorifies poverty economically or treats it as a good thing. It's true. The Bible does warn about the dangers of wealth. It warns about the unique temptations that come with having wealth, but it does not then glorify material poverty. But rather what is in view here is a kind of spiritual poverty that understands our emptiness before a holy and infinite God. I like the way that the Puritan Thomas Watson defined it. He said, poor in spirit then signifies those who are brought to the sense of their sins and seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves and sue wholly to the mercy of God in Christ. It's when we're brought to an end of ourselves so that we cast ourselves upon God's mercy entirely. And notice that this is how the sermon starts. I love that. I get such a kick out of it because this is the most famous piece of ethical writing ever written. Even non-Christians, they love the ethics. They love the morals of the Sermon on the Mount. But do you realize the first verse of the sermon is saying, you can't do any of this. I love it. You can't turn the other cheek. You can't go the other mile. You can't accomplish any of that on your own. The foundation, the doorway is being poor in spirit, admitting that God, I can't do this. I need you. In other words, I would define being poor in spirit as a humble dependence on the Lord. 
It is a humble dependence on the Lord. First of all, it's about humility. This is first of all, a sense of how small we are before an infinite God. That compared to the the God who inhabits eternity from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, we are a blip on a radar. Our life is like that. It's like a vapor. That we are so small that that God created universes and galaxies and, and we are so small compared to God. That should humble us. But next, it's about a sense of our sinfulness before a holy God, that not only are we small, but we have rebelled against God. We have sinned against him, that we were created to enjoy this fellowship with him, but we have rebelled against him. We have sinned against him. This should humble us, make us poor in spirit. But it's also about dependence. Because we are small and because we are sinful, we must understand that everything we are and everything we have is a gift from God's hand. It is all God's grace, nothing that we do, nothing that we earn. It's all of his grace. God wants to make us poor in spirit so that we will depend on him. Sinclair Ferguson said, the gospel empties us of all that we are in order to fill us with all that he is. It's the starting point of the gospel that we will be emptied of all of our self-reliance, emptied of all of our self-dependence and come entirely to God. Edwards once said, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's being poor in spirit, acknowledging that reality that we are completely dependent on God. We are poor in spirit, but this is hard for Americans, right? We're independent We idolize people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We like to feel like we earned it, like we paid for it. We don't wanna be poor in spirit. We'd rather be middle-class in spirit because we'll admit, okay, I'm not perfect, God. I'll give you that. Uh, And I need some help. I could certainly use some help, Jesus. You can be my therapist, my life coach, whatever, but I don't know about the savior stuff. I wanna feel like I did it. I want some of the credit. I want some of the glory. I wanna feel like I contributed something here, Jesus, God will have none of that. It is all of grace or it is not at all. We must entirely cast ourselves and surrender to God, cast ourselves on his mercy, acknowledging that there is nothing we can do of any spiritual good before God on our own. It is all of his grace. That's the starting point to a life that is blessed, admitting our own emptiness. And I love that. You know, that's the first requirement for becoming a Christian, admitting you're a failure, admitting that you're messed up, admitting that you're broken. You know, some people say that religion is a crutch for the weak. And listen, they are exactly right. It is totally a crutch for the weak. The only problem is you can't see your legs are broken, right? We are weak. We are broken. We need a crutch. More than that, we need like, you know, to be revived because we were dead, This is an even better metaphor. Guys, we are broken. We are sinful. And until we get that, we will never get the glorious nature of the gospel. That's how we become a Christian. But even as Christians, we need to live our lives with this perspective of being poor in spirit. So this leads to the question, as Christians, how can we develop a poor spirit? How can we grow in our humble dependence on the Lord? Let me give you two things. First of all, time in the presence of God time in the presence of God. If you want to be humble, spend time with God. Nothing will do it faster. 
Look with me at Isaiah chapter six. It's a famous passage, but it's really important. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Don't you see what's happening here? Isaiah gets this vision of the glory and the holiness of God. By the way, John 12 tells us that was Jesus, that this is a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. When Isaiah sees this vision and he sees the glory of God and he hears the song of the seraphim, what is his response? Does he casually stroll into the presence of God? Oh, hey God, how you doing, buddy? Anybody? No, he falls on his face and he begins to proclaim judgment on himself. He says, I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. And he starts confessing his sins. And isn't it interesting that one who is a prophet as his vocation, as his calling, he speaks the word of God for a living. What sin does he identify? He's got a dirty mouth. He's a man of unclean lips at the very place where he is using his calling to glorify God is the place where he is most broken. He falls apart in the presence of God for God to put him back together again because God redeems him with the, the fire from the altar signifying that he is cleansed. R.C. Sproul preaching on this text once said, for the first time, Isaiah understood who God was. And because of that, for the first time, Isaiah understood who Isaiah was. In the same way, church, it was a vision of the holiness of God that changed his life, humbling him and making him fit to serve God. The same is true of us. It is when we are in the presence of God, when we are humbled by his holiness and his glory, that we are made fit to serve him, made fit to be used by him. That's where the poor spirit comes from. It comes by comparison. When we spend time in the presence of God, whether that be through, through scripture or through prayer or through worship, whatever it might be, when we spend time in the presence of God, it humbles us and brings us to a place of dependence on him. But next, loving accountability. I think to grow in humble dependence, we need to live with some loving accountability. I just said you need to be around God to be humble. I also think you ought to be around other people. This is one of the one another ministries in the local church. As we spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ and we invite them to have the kinds of relationships where they can honestly and openly speak to us about our lives based on scripture, it brings humility. And here's another reason why. Pride is isolating. Proud people don't seek out accountability because then they have a chance of being wrong. They have to take the risk that they might be wrong and someone will call them out on it. But it is when we have these kinds of open and honest relationships in the body that it cultivates a heart of humility in our lives. 
I love Hebrews 3 for this. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. And in case we don't know what every day means, he specifies it for us. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guys, he's saying this sort of one another ministry in the body where we are exhorting one another that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin needs to happen every day every single day, because our hearts are so prone to wander off into pride and into sin and into self-reliance. These relationships in the body are part of what keep us humble. And so now let's look at the promise. The blessing is for those who are poor in spirit. The promise is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've talked a lot about the kingdom of before, this idea of the reign of God over his people. And this idea that there's both a now to the kingdom, Jesus is reigning now, and there's a not yet to the kingdom. One day Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is we are living in the kingdom now and we, are, we will inherit the kingdom in the future one day. This is the promise. If we are poor in spirit, we come to an end of ourselves. Then we are those who are a part of God's kingdom. And I love that because listen, he's saying, he doesn't say the kingdom is for the perfect. He doesn't say the kingdom is for good people whose good works outweigh their bad. He doesn't say the kingdom is for people who gave enough. The kingdom is for people who did enough, who went to church enough. He says the kingdom is for those who have come to an end of themselves and who have depended on Christ. But next, this leads us to blessed are those who mourn. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I think there's a logical sequence here to the Beatitudes. These aren't just random collection of sayings, right? When we come to an end of ourselves and we're poor in spirit, that leads us to mourning, to grief over both the sin in our lives and the brokenness in the world around us. And remember the point we made earlier, that the Beatitudes are not just natural attitudes. This isn't just mourning because we're sad about something. This isn't just I'm crying because my dog died. This isn't just I'm a Seahawks fan, you know, and I watched the game last night and I got to see the future Super Bowl champs uh, take him to town. Listen, this is a spiritual mourning over sin and the effects of sin in the world. There's a tension that we should feel here because it's true that Christians ought to be the most joyful, happy people in the world because of what we have in Christ. Yes, we ought to be the most joyful and happy people in the world. But the other side of that tension is that there is a holy seriousness that comes to being a Christian. We know about the reality of sin, both in our hearts and in the world around us. And if we love what God loves and we hate what God hates, then that ought to cause us to feel grief when we're encountered with the reality of sin in our lives. Let me give you three ways that we should mourn. First of all, first and foremost, maybe, we should mourn our own sin. As followers of Christ, when our hearts have been made tender by the gospel, there's something that happens when you become a Christian where the things that you used to enjoy lose their taste, if you will. Like, uh, there's something that happens after you've walked with Christ for longer and longer, your heart becomes more and more sensitive. Your conscience becomes more and more sensitive toward the things of the world and towards sin. The things that you used to enjoy now are repulsive. 
And that's a good thing. That's the way that it ought to be. You know, I once heard in a Q&A panel, somebody asked John MacArthur, who's in his 80s now as a preacher, and they asked him, uh, do you sin less now that you've been walking with Christ for all these decades? And he thought about it for a minute. He's like, I think so, but it hurts more now. I think that's really true. There is this sense of mourning that grows as we grow in our sanctification. But that mourning is never to be an end in itself. It is a means to an end. It should lead us somewhere. It's not just that we're crying all the time. It, it leads us somewhere. And I think the best place to see that is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what Paul wrote to the church. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, not just because I made you sad, but because you were grieved into repenting. That's the key. That your grief led somewhere, that it did something in you, that you were grieved into repenting. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's saying there's two different kinds of grief over sin. There is godly grief that leads to repentance, meaning the grief is not the end in itself, but it moves us to repent of our sin, to turn from our sin and run to Christ and there find forgiveness and comfort and joy. That's where the for they will be comforted comes from, by the way. The comfort comes from the forgiveness that we receive when we mourn our sin and we repent of it. But in contrast to that, worldly grief is all about the consequences. Worldly grief sounds like this. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that I offended you. I'm sorry about the consequences of my sin, but if I could get away with it, I'd still be doing it. That's worldly grief. Worldly grief does not ever get to the point of repentance, but sometimes worldly grief just ends in despair and it sulks in self-pity and in self-loathing instead of getting to repentance and restoration and joy. I think we see both of these in scripture side by side in the gospels. I want you to think about two different people, Peter and Judas. Do you know both of them betrayed Jesus? Both of them betrayed Jesus. Judas did it for money. Peter, outstanding outside as Jesus is under trial, three times denied that he knew Jesus after swearing that he would never deny him like five minutes ago. And both of them were grieved about it. You see, we see with Peter, as Jesus looks at him, the rooster crows, the text tells us that he went out and wept bitterly. You know, Judas was also grieved. He also regretted what he did. You know, he threw the money right back at him. He didn't even want it. He was grieved over his sin. But where did that grief lead both of them? Peter was grieved into repentance and he was restored by Jesus and he was used for the kingdom of God in mighty ways. Whereas Judas's grief was an end in itself. And it ended tragically in despair. We ought to mourn over our sin. It's true. When we realize how holy God is and how sinful I am, that should cause grief in my heart. But that's never the means to the end. That grief leads us to repentance. That repentance leads us to forgiveness and comfort. And that comfort leads to joy and peace in the presence of God. So first of all, we mourn our own sin. Second, we mourn the world's sin both our sin personally and the sin of the world around us. We see Jesus doing this, by the way, as he's walking toward Jerusalem. 
in Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, when he considered the sin and the unbelief of his city was so grieved that he wept as he prophesied the judgment that he knew was coming. The sin of his city grieved his heart to the point of weeping. In church, we ought to feel the same way about the world that we live in. The sin of our world ought to bring grief to our heart. But just as in our personal sin, grief leads to repentance, I think when it comes to the world's sin, grief leads us to proclaim Christ because he's the only one who can do anything about it. He is the only one who can bring salvation and bring real lasting change to a broken world. But let's be honest, I don't think we do this very well. As Christians, man, I don't think we do a good job grieving the sin of the world. I think we often fall into one of two traps. I think, first of all, we can become way too comfortable in the world, way too at home in the world, kind of like a fish doesn't even notice the water after a while, where the worldliness, the sin of our culture just becomes so normal to us that it doesn't even bother us anymore. Maybe we even start to wink at it a little bit or flirt with it a little bit. We start laughing at the jokes. We start watching the trash on TV. We start enjoying those things. That's one trap. The other trap is, yeah, I hate the sin of the world. Yeah, I'm offended by it. But rather than being grieved in my heart, it creates a sort of smug, self-righteous arrogance where we become like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who was breaking his arm to pat himself on the back, being like, Lord, thank God I'm not like those people. Thank God I'm not like those crazy people doing all this stuff out there. Listen, rather than either of those things, The sin of our culture ought to grieve our hearts and that grief ought to lead us to do what Paul did when he was in Athens, start preaching the gospel. Because that's the answer. That's the only answer. So we mourn our own sin. We mourn the world's sin. Last point, we mourn the effects of sin. The reality of sin in the world created a lot of horrible effects and consequences, the ultimate of which is death. All of the suffering in the world today is the result of sin. This was not the way that God designed the world to be from the beginning. You know, a quick Bible trivia time um, for you guys who had Sunday school or whatever growing up. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Anybody? Jesus wept. Anybody know the reference? Bonus? John eleven thirty five. 35. Awesome. Uh, So listen, I actually want to show you that verse. I actually think it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It might be the most profound. It might be the most incredible when you consider what's going on in the story and the context surrounding it. So let's look together at John 11, starting at verse 33, about mourning the effects of sin. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Let's pause there. I actually don't think that's a great translation. The Greek is literally, he was indignant in his spirit. This is anger. Jesus is mad. Jesus is furious in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then we get to Jesus wept. 
Jesus, as he's approaching Lazarus, and he's approaching this funeral, he is furious to the point of weeping. He's so mad. And now we got to ask the question, why, Jesus? I mean, he knows what he's about to do, doesn't he? You know, he's God, he's omniscient. And even more, look at the beginning of John 11. He told him what he's about to go do. So why are you mad about it? And why are you weeping? I think because Jesus, as the creator of everything, is furious at what death is doing to his good creation. He comes face to face with the reality of death and what it is doing to those that he loves and cares about. And it makes him so angry that he's weeping about it. And he steps into that situation. And we all know the story. He brings Lazarus back to life. Here's the point for us today. Jesus was so grieved and angry at what sin was doing to God's world that it caused him to mourn. There is something so appropriate about Christian grief, something so fitting about mourning, suffering in this world because it was not what God intended it to be. What does the scripture say in Genesis 1 when God created everything after he made it? It was good. It was good. Death, suffering, all of it is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. It was not the way that God designed it. So as Christians, we should mourn what sin does to the world. Every war, every injustice, every broken family, every act of violence, every disease, every death is the result of sin. And as believers, we grieve. And as Romans 8 says, we groan inwardly as we long for the day when Jesus returns to make it all right again. But I love what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We mourn, but we mourn with hope. The hope that there's going to be a day where there is no more mourning. When Jesus comes back and he wipes away every tear and he makes all things new. That's the hope that we have. And that's where the comfort comes from. Second half of the verse, for they shall be comforted. Our comfort comes from the forgiving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have of eternal life in him. That's the comfort. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back. And as they come, I wanna leave you with one final thought. We invite the prayer team as well. And, you know, as we're talking about sin and suffering, man, if you've got a struggle, you've got a burden in your heart today, why don't you come and talk and pray with one of our prayer team members who would love to be here for you and minister to you in that way. But as we've already mentioned, what we have seen from Jesus today, being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, this is not gonna pop up if you type in hashtag blessed on social media. It's not. But Jesus showed us this is the doorway this is the path into a life of blessing in the kingdom of God. A life of blessing begins by acknowledging our emptiness, casting ourselves on God's mercy, getting rid of our self-reliance and mourning over sin and its effects. And when we do this, we can be assured that we are members of God's kingdom and we will be comforted through his grace. But here's one of my favorite things about God. There's a lot of them, but here's one of my favorite things about God. It's that he became a man through the person of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. That means that there is nothing that you are going through or have not going through that God cannot relate to because he became a man. And all of these beatitudes, Jesus knows what it's like. And Jesus is the perfect example of all of them. 
How is Jesus poor in spirit? Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, though he's the eternal son of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched onto, but he emptied himself. He made himself poor in spirit by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. Jesus Christ displayed the ultimate humility in coming to this world, becoming a man to save us from our sins. Bold out mourning. As we've already seen, Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. Isaiah 53 says that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept at Lazarus's grave. Jesus's grief in the garden was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood. And on the cross, he cried out, literally, he screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. Trust me, he does. And so here's the deal. When you, by faith, come to Jesus, he knows what to do with you because he's been there. He is the wonderful counselor. Jesus knows what it's like. Come to Christ. That's the invitation. That's your practical takeaway for this morning or whatever. Come to Jesus. He knows what it's like. Receive his grace, receive his comfort, receive his love in a fresh way this morning. Because as we've seen, the starting point of the Beatitudes is an acknowledgement that we can't do this on our own, but by faith in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we walk in the kingdom of God, we really can begin to grow in these virtues. We really can begin to have this kind of lifestyle in a way that honors the Lord. This is my prayer for us, that we would live this kind of life of blessing in the kingdom of God as a church family for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord, we love you. We admit, Lord, that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. It is all of your grace. So Lord, we cast ourselves upon your mercy today. We love you. There's nothing that we desire on he in heaven or on earth besides you. So Father, help us to be humbly dependent on you, trusting in you. Give us tender hearts and consciences towards sin, both our sin and the sin of the world around us, that we might be grieved into repenting and into proclaiming the gospel and into hoping in Christ. God, we love you. Make us more like Jesus. We ask it in his name, amen.